Welcome to the Daniel Energy Partners In-Basin Observations Podcast. Today, we're doing a special episode where we recap our Thrive Energy Conference, and we have a team roundtable ready to discuss their takeaways. Our panel today includes myself, Bill Austin, Bill Herbert, Jeff Jay, and Sean Mitchell, all of us from DEP. So we're really happy to be here. Thanks for everyone to get on. Uh, Sean's here with me in the office, whereas Jeff and Bill are out in the field, so to speak. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is one of our non-in-basin where we're, we're really not out there. We're in the office. Everyone's recovering, hopefully nicely, from the, uh, the event. And we're really happy. Everything went really well. The attendee numbers for us were up significantly from last year, and we're really thankful for everybody who came and enjoyed it with us. Um, this has started from zero, really, and now we are at you know some pretty big numbers. So, Bill, talk to us a little bit about the attendance numbers. I mean, you're, you're kind of the guy that keep, keeps the gate on registrations, and just maybe talk to us a little bit about where we started in 21 and where, kind of where we've evolved today, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. We uh, Look. Year one, we had 800 people show up in 2021 or, or, or thereabouts. This year, we had 2,076 people check in, which is a pretty big change. Um, you know, we had about tw almost 2,500 people register, uh, and we're just super, super happy. Like, you know, people from Houston, from Midland, from Fort Worth, Denver, they kind of came from everywhere, and that's really been a, a, a nice way to kind of see everybody and at, for all of us to get together. Well, and I, that, that, those are great numbers, and I, and again, can't thank uh, the sponsors, Winston and & Strong and Target Hospitality, our presenting sponsors, um, Hall, of, or Home, Hall of Fame sponsors, yep. Freemeyer, Dragon Products, and BlackRock, uh, just really can't thank them enough for stepping up this year and, and being being very, very uh, large sponsors of this event. So we we thank them. Yeah, I mean, look, to have BlackRock as a sponsor uh, this year mm -hmm. was really great. It's a, yeah. it's a change for us. Absolutely. Um, so we're, we're, we're happy about that. Hopefully we'll be able to have some content with all of those people come out in the next couple of weeks. Um, and we'll we'll release that maybe here, maybe somewhere else. We'll see what happens. So with all that, we've done all kind of the, the nice, easy numbers. Really wanted to put it to the three of you guys. Why don't we just go down the line, let Sean kick it off. What was your most insightful panel? What did you like the most about, you know, the content that we saw at the Union Station? So mine's going to be a little different, I will say. Like, I mean, I think everyone's looking for, like, activity, what's going on with activity, what's going on with gas prices, all those great things. I th one thing that really stood out to me, and we we talk about it in, in our in our note from Monday or Sunday, and it was, it was around ESG, and I thought the observation from one of the largest money managers in the world, and he was talking about how he manages his people they're basically paid to produce returns and he said look i manage 2000 people whose job is to produce returns and none of them get paid based on the temperature of the earth it's really kind of just shocking to me to see the sea change not only at, at that necessarily asset manager level but also some of the other anecdotes across the board during the event i think another very large investment manager told us on a panel we basically got rid of our head of ESG. 
I think you've seen lots of articles in the paper over the last couple of weeks just talking about ESG. I mean, what I think it really does for for all of us is it brings the you know energy security, and I'm sure we'll get into this, and energy affordability and reliability is so front and center today still on the energy stage. Um, and, but but more importantly, I think what what folks are focused on today is like it's about generating returns, right? And this is an industry that's been very good at, uh, you know, kind of outperforming the market the past two years. We have had a slow start to this year, obviously. And that's where I think a lot of question marks came around the conference on the activity front. So for me, it was really just kind of this sense of like, wow, we have some very large money managers at this event that are not saying ESG doesn't matter. They're not saying it's not important. They're just saying like, hey, returns really do matter. And and you know, I think there's a there's a contingency out there that would tell you like it's all about ESG. And I think it's it, we're finding out that maybe it's not. So yeah, look, he had a clip, and I think I was able to take that clip. I was meant to send it around to everyone. Is really. He did it. He said it succinctly in terms of that re- returns um, comment, which you don't always see. Well, and then look, in the the same conversation around this, uh, the same kind of large money manager um, said an orderly and well managed transition is good for the world. It's good for economic growth, and it's good for our clients as investors. I think that's true. So. I don't know. Maybe I'll punt it over to 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 Bill Herbert or Jeff Jay uh, to see kind of okay. what their thoughts are. And most interesting takes uh, before we yep. dive into kind of the activity stuff. Uh, I thought that to me uh, the most revealing uh, with regard to uh, the, the sort of consistency across the board and the level of passion that was conveyed in articulating this was the EMP margin squeeze. Uh, and basically, um, you know, as a result of the correction in uh, oil and gas prices, and I should say the implosion in gas prices, uh, and coupled with, uh, you know, uh, recovering uh, and subsequently, uh, uh, um, you know, inflecting oil service costs. Uh, and so, uh, and we we have pretty much seen this with regard to conference calls in terms of, you know, CapEx budgets or Q4 CapEx running hotter than expected uh, and cash flow generation or, or free cash flow guidance running at the low end of the expected range or lower. And, um, and I think that has implications on a few fronts. Uh, one, I think it's probably going to result in some kind of recalibration with regard to OFS pricing. Hard to see a collapse on that front just because the rate count continues to be pretty solid. I mean, the Permian rate count slapped down. Uh, but historically, uh, when EMP companies are generating a lot less cash flow, uh, it's very difficult for the OFS community to maintain pricing. I think the most important implication, however, of the uh, of the EMP margin squeeze and uh, and the recalibration in cash flow expectations is that uh, reinvestment uh, is going to be more subdued uh, than um, what perhaps may have been the case, uh, and I think that's going to have implications with regard to U.S. production growth. Uh, which ties in also, 
you know, every single panel that Sean and I were on, if not every single panel that we had, uh, we had a rapid fire round robin of questions, one of which was over or under on 500,000 barrels per day of U.S. black oil production growth. I think virtually every single one, every single panelist said under, and maybe one said 500,000 barrels per day sounds about right. So I thought that to me was the... Um, uh, the sort of biggest takeaway of the conference for me. I, I agree with you, Bill. And I think yeah. the, on the EMP margin squeeze, I don't know if you remember this comment, but one of our private EMP guys said, we saw better economics in, 50, in a $50 crude price environment yeah. than we do right now on a well level. So yeah. it's really telling. I do think it's getting significantly harder today to do what they did a year ago. Mm -hmm. I and I think that yeah. all speaks to a positive. We can get into that later, but that all speaks to a positive uh yeah. macro narrative if you will for the space that was a great point yep all right jeff yeah. why don't you i think from that take us home no that, i just i wonder piece. yeah yeah sorry well i will just say you know one of the things i always look for at these at these conferences is a little bit of dissonance between the participants i thought that comment was well taken and another comment on that panel was someone who said look We've talked a lot about efficiency gains and what inning we're on in efficiency, but in fact, we're just not that efficient, right? We've actually lost, we've moved backwards on efficiencies. And I think that that's, you know, an important element as well. But I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, other takeaways, I actually thought the offshore uh, panels were, you know, were kind of interesting as well. It's just not an area I'm super focused on. It was interesting to get those participants take on, you know, how offshore capability in terms of, you know, the ability to sort of explore, the ability to do offshore drilling has really withered you know, over the past decade or so. Um, and I thought that was actually a fascinating panel. Um, and I will say one of the weird takeaways I, I took is I didn't realize that the Ukraine-Russian conflict had made powder and charges for perforation um, yeah. a little bit short out there. I agree. Yeah. All so, right. Well, that, and so, yeah, so that's, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. No, no, no. I was just, I was going to say, I was trying to keep it succinct because I know we got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if we want to hit this now, but, but Bill, you brought it up. You know, one of the okay. things that you and Sean did a really good job of, I thought on there was, you know, the over under or, or trying to like take this as a moment in time as to a couple of different data points. And Sean, if you want to hit, hit on that a little, I thought those are always good because we've been doing that now for the last three years. It's always a little different, but well, it's good to hear that. Yeah, no, look, I think it's a great one because I, it's not. I think I think bills is more important, and it's 500,000 barrels a day of production growth. Uh, I think the other interesting one, as we ask the question we always like to, which is where do you think activity is by the end of the year in terms of the rig count? And John. Daniel and I started with an 800 number, right? The rig count when we started this conference was around 741. We were thinking, hey, we'll throw out 800 and just see where people fall. People were just immediately taking the under. So we, I don't know if you noticed this in several of the panels, but we changed it to 750 to try to make it more interesting. Well, guess what? The shocking thing is a lot of people still took the under. And I'm like, okay, we're at 741 today. And you're telling me by the end of the year, we're gonna be below 750. That doesn't seem great for activity in terms of, right. of drilling activity. And I think it goes to to Bill's point about the implosion of gas prices, margin squeeze at the private or public company level. Their margins are getting squeezed pretty hard. And I tried to flush this out on a panel in terms of like, hey, it feels like the worst, your best quarters if you're an EMP are behind you. Um, I didn't 
I didn't necessarily get someone to bite on that, but it it sure feels that way without co- higher commodity prices, uh, at least over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. It certainly feels like EMP, the best quarters in terms of generating cash flow seem like they're in the rearview mirror. But with so, that, so, I don't. So, so I think that's all that's all very fair uh, and it's all very correct. I, I, I think it's worth noting, however, that I think some of the larger uh you know, energy companies at our conference, coupled with uh, uh, with the kind of the very impressive, you know, panelists from the buy side uh, who are all uh, at, you know, kind of top 20 holders of public energy equities. Um, it feels bad today. And it is. I mean, crude WTI peaked at about 120, 125 uh, most recently in June of last year to 77 today. Uh, and natural gas prices have just been savaged. Uh, we were at six, seven bucks in December. We're at two something today. Uh, but uh, what we also saw today, uh, we saw very positive China P- PMI numbers. Uh, and I, 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 I think everybody, you know, I mean, the subtext of this conference to me in a funny way was not only, Sean, you sort of correctly pointing out that people seem to be cautious and defensive with regard to their cash flow generation prospects in the near term, but it's also kind of a waiting on China theme. Uh, and if the IEA's numbers on China turn out to be correct, that is weak Q1 and very strong Q2 through Q4, up north of a million barrels per day of oil demand growth year over year, Market balances in the second half of this year are going to tighten. Oil prices will move higher. And I think the mindset on the part of industry participants is also going to change. So it's bad now. It's weak now. It doesn't feel great. But this could easily change pretty quickly. And we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, no, I I agree with that for sure. Um, You know, maybe one other thing. just in terms of like activity, uh, as we think about, you know, the number of land rigs that one might suggest. I mean, I I think it's important to also remind the audience that look, we did a survey right back in October right. uh, or November, November of last year, yeah, November of last year. They basically pointed to I don't know, 65 to 75 EMP companies that basically pointed us to a flattish, maybe slightly up rig count, 22 versus 23. You know, um, I I think we had a little pushback there. There were several folks that were thinking it would be higher. I don't know that we'll ultimately end up being right, but it certainly feels like today, just given we're actually rig counts going lower, right? It's not just staying flat. It's actually moving lower uh, at the moment. Um, It certainly feels like a flattish activity level for 2023 seems more relevant than up, you know, 50 to 100 rigs. So, yeah, I think that's fair. Again, I think it's just going to be a question of what, of what commodity prices are and what cash flow expectations are, and that can change on a dime. But right now, I think that's that's reasonable, uh, you know, premise. And then I think yeah, the I just, other thing, a lot of questions around the e I and mean, going into the conference. I know I had a lot of of folks asking me, do you think EMP M and A will reemerge uh, North American? Uh, given this is kind of a manufacturing business these days, you know, are we going to see more EMP M&A going forward? We saw a fair amount last year, but it seemed to be a hot topic. I thought I thought the the one comment from um, 
one of the very large public EMPs uh, had the the privilege of doing the fireside chat with. I think he made a comment that one of the major integrated CEOs said there are too many CEOs per barrel in the Permian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought that was actually fascinating to me. Yeah, uh, I, and and I also thought that the comment uh, on the part of one of our, uh, uh, you know, one of the most significant energy private equity players, they're seeing they're they're starting to see more public EMP competition uh, with regard to the MA landscape uh, and then and then one more thing sean i thought it was interesting one of the large permian basin focused emp companies was asked would he ever consider you know looking uh, outside the permian uh, and i think his answer was it would take a lot but you know we would uh, not necessarily today or in a huge hurry to do it uh, but we would consider getting much larger in gas outside the Permian. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, maybe that's a good transition into kind of the the whole gas narrative yep. coming into this mm -hmm. conference, man. I, th I think you said it well, Bill, in our in our note this week, gas is complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, gas, to your point earlier, gas in, I think, mid-December, was almost seven bucks, and by the middle of January, you were less than, I think, less than three. Well, no, no, that, that's right. In fact, you were, <laughs> you were, you were almost, you almost had a one handle on right, right, Henry Hub and his <clears throat> two and change today, and the EIA for what it's worth, they don't see gas prices getting to four bucks until year end. Um, I think it's a little bit depressing, actually, with regard to net gas. I think if you have you know, pipeline uh, um, takeaway capacity, and your uh, and you have access to LNG takeaway capacity, and the LNG story is positive, right? I mean, we're uh, we're up. Uh, I think global LNG is set to expand, according to Bloomberg, by 20 percent. Right. You know, by 2026, and the U.S. is going to supply over 50 percent of that liquefaction capacity. Uh, and so that's a good outlet here with regard to U.S. producers, but that's Gulf Coast and Permian. And uh, well, the unfortunate thing with regard to the energy policy in this country is that uh, unless you can build a pipeline, uh, yep. you know, this gas is regionalized and balkanized and kind of a stranded asset. And the only, th I, you know, I thought that the CEO of a large gas company expressing the only three states in which you can build pipelines without a whole lot of hassle, Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma, that's it. Right. Uh, so that's that's the complicating thing about gas. To me, it's still going to be regionalized, notwithstanding the tremendous resource base that we have in, in this country. Well, I also think it's interesting, you know, as we talk about gas, I think most people, at least on the conference calls through the quarter, at least most of the calls I've, I've participated and listened to and read the transcripts, it's every single oil field service company says, well, we're not as exposed to the Haynesville as, as some. And I think that's all fine. Right. I think, and that, and that's been my comment to most investors, like not being exposed to gas in the Haynesville is fine, but let's not forget rising GORs in the Permian. That's right. right? Right. What does that mean for in, in lower gas prices and 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 literally no more takeaway coming well, at least for 12 months? What does and, that mean for EMP right. cash flows and reinvestment rates? 
And you're clearly not going to see the flaring that you used to see when this problem would rear its head, right? I mean, you just can't yeah. do it anymore. People are so focused on, you know, their methane emissions. So, I mean, clearly there's, you know, there's some risk of curtailment at some point in the chain. So, I mean, I think it, it could have a profound impact on U.S. oil production and volume growth. I agree. And look at the largest independent in the Permian. Uh, they've gone from an oil cut of 58% a year ago to about 52% today. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, geo, I mean, so, I mean, nat gas plus NGLs, it's probably close to 50% of Permian production. Uh, Bill, I think one of our Permian or private Permian guys threw this out there. I mm -hmm. saw you writing it down, so I, I know you heard it. Okay. Permian gas production, according to one panelist, is that for every million barrels a day of oil production growth, you're getting three BCF a day and rising of natural gas production growth. Yeah. Uh, in the form yeah, of associated yeah. gas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Permian's not just a big oil play. It's it's hugely important, and U.S. is expected with justification to be the, the main engine of global oil production growth uh, through 2030, but it's also increasingly a hybrid natural gas and NGL play. Uh, and so you, you got to take those prices into account with regard to EMP cash flows and reinvestment, and that's a complicating factor for EMPs on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't know. To me, it's still it. You know, this dovetails into another big theme in the conference, and we've written about this. You know, plenty. But you know, the Permian, you know, isn't. I mean, the Permian today and the Permian going forward isn't the Permian of the last ten years. It's harder. Uh, and so, uh, you know, getting the outsized production growth that we used to get. I mean, 2018, 2019, U.S. oil production growth grew by over 1 million barrels per day. Uh, I think last year we grew by something like 600,000 barrels per day, if memory serves. Look at that. Yeah, 636,000 barrels per day. The EIA has us growing by 610,000 barrels per day this year. I'll take the under on that. Not by a lot, but I think it will be down in 2024, 160,000 barrels per day. So directionally, I think that's right, and we are decelerating, and it's harder. Uh, and part of that, Sean, correctly so, um, rising gas cuts uh, and rising NGL cuts. Yeah, and then maybe turning to Bill, I thought that the private equity panel mm -hmm. was a was a, was a, was a good one. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think you kind of hit on here with one of them was talk about the different maybe buckets of investors that you're dealing with today. These guys are all, I can't, we can't talk about how much or how well the fundraising is going, but I think all these guys are in different stages of actually raising traditional right. energy funds. Right. Um, yeah. May, right. Maybe talk to us a little bit about uh, that com conversation. So I thought that, um, you know, uh, it, it's a, uh, Without their explicitly saying it, the subtext was that uh, there's increased uh, kind of buy-in into the duration aspect of the reinvestment cycle for um, domestic energy, uh, oil and gas. Uh, there were three buckets that they talked about. One, the first bucket is the um, uh, our uh, 
the LPs that never went away, they're happy as a clan being energy investors and continue to commit and if not upsize uh, their uh, investment. The second bucket uh, was investors who were at one time uh, active in energy had been disengaged for a period of years but we're now contemplating coming back because of the reasons that we just talked about, improving duration prospects and the need for reinvestment and frankly, better capital allocation for uh, the industry in general. And then there's a third bucket, uh, and this is a, you know, a large bucket, unfortunately, uh, and that is basically investors who were once uh, willing to participate in energy, but are but have left and are never coming back largely due to ESG reasons. And I think that third bucket being a pretty large bucket uh, of once active uh, energy investors uh, never coming back again, that's just, an, you know, yet another manifestation of the increased cost of capital for the energy industry writ large. And, you know, you can take that data point, you can take a 5% weighting in the S&P 500, you can take a look at these companies trading at high single digit, low double digit free cash flow yields, uh, whichever way you slice it, they're not necessarily getting accorded a premium valuations or necessarily super easy access to capital. And again, ultimately that's bullish because that means it's more difficult to reinvest. Um, so that that was my uh, takeaway. Hey, Jeff, do you want to maybe just kind of give us kind of a two second summary with regard to the refining, you know, opportunities and threats and what our yeah. uh, large EMP panelists had to say about gasoline demand? Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm so I think that's a it's, it's a it's a fine segue. I, I, you know, to me, I feel like. And, you know, we've kind of written about it, uh, I think, fairly extensively, you know, over the past year. But, you know, at, at the conference, you know, obviously we had a very large refiner basically say, look, um, you know, thanks to uh, in, improving penetration for EVs and, and high fuel economy vehicles, you know, there, we're seeing gasoline demand. They think it may have peaked. Uh, it's clearly below pre-COVID levels. Um, and, you know, distillate is still doing well and, you know, jet demand has kind of been the star of the show. All that sort of makes sense from a perspective of, you know, economic growth kind of, you know, at least being better than it was during COVID, right? They would expect distillate to recover as we move goods around the country by rail and truck and, um, you know, jet fuel as people start to travel more. And I, I suspect we'll see a good bit more of that globally now with China reopening, which we can talk about a bit. But, you know, look, that's all kind of met by the fact that 4 million barrels a day of capacity, um, you know, has been closed down and shuttered. There, there's some modest expansions, um, you know, I guess large facilities in the Middle East and Asia, but, you know, modest by, you know, a global 100 million barrel demand kind of number uh, and some modest expansions in the States, but not enough to offset the 1.4-ish million barrels a day of capacity we've lost. And so when you sort of combine that lost capacity with, you know, super normally low inventories for product, um, I think I put it to the to our panelists. I was like, is lower demand actually a bit of a blessing in disguise? And I think he said yes, if I recall. And, you know, I think because I think, you know, at sort of pre-COVID levels of demand would be incredibly difficult for the industry to supply. And I think, you know, in the very near term, we'll probably have another sort of, I think, high product price year, potentially, barring some exogenous event, because 
you know, we're having, a, you know, we've run these things so hot and so hard over the last couple of years to capture these margins that, you know, now things are breaking down. And so these guys have to go into a very heavy uh, maintenance and turnaround season. And so I think, you know, the, the inventory picture, despite sort of, you know, flagging demand is unlikely to get, I guess, you know, substantially better as the year right. wears on. So, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, it seemed to me that, you know, despite all of these sort of cross currents that the general takeaway was that, you know, pricing and inventory levels were probably going to be relatively bullish for the refineries. All right. Yeah, no, look, that's that's a great recap, Jeff. Um, you know, maybe kind of just to wrap things up. I mean, I, I, I'm going to kind of give you my view of the world, you know, this year versus last year coming out of the conference. I mean, last year coming out of our conference uh, on day two, Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. Um, yeah. I want I'm not going to say it was a layup, but for most people, the investment decision and the ability to invest in stocks uh, was pretty obvious where you needed to go, right? I mean, I think most people were in the in the in the hey, the oil service space has been underappreciated. They're not getting pricing traction yet. It's maybe started to get traction, but you knew, if, as an investor anyway, you could look at the world and say, wow, uh, if if the world stays healthy in terms of oil price, which by the way they just ensured that it might stay healthy. And uh, at the time, but remember before Russia invaded Ukraine, crude was almost 90 bucks. Mm-hmm. So the world was was pretty tight, and I think that just gave you a layup for hey, you can go kind of all in on oil field services. I think today it's more complicated than that. Today it's it's not necessarily a layup in North America. I think international and offshore are certainly inflecting higher. We heard that on 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 some of the panels, and I'm not going to say that's the layup, but it sure seems like an easier road to travel today as an investor. And I think we. You know, as I talked to some of the investors coming out of the conference, I think they felt that way as well. So I don't know if anybody else has, you know, Bill, you were you were there last year, uh, Bill Herbert or Jeff, if you guys want to chime in and add to that. But I, I, I think from an investor standpoint, it's it's pretty complicated right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's nothing like, you know, I mean, look, we had a good day today. Uh, the China PMI numbers were good. And finally, this was the first respectable weekly DOE uh, inventory print that we've had in eight or nine weeks have been, it's been, I mean, it's been really, really pretty, uh, you know, pretty challenging uh, from a sort of domestic inventory bill. I, I mean, my view is that the industry is super rational. I mean, everybody was, was sensibly cautious in the near term yeah. and yep. they were um, I think sensibly cautiously optimistic about the intermediate and longer term. Nobody's overcommitting capital. Nobody's front running it, uh, but they're ready to respond. Uh, you know, uh, uh, if it's uh, justified, you know, I, you know, I, one last thing for me, it seems like this industry, notwithstanding the fact that there is a multi-year reinvestment need and story building as a result of the, of the number of factors, Sean, that you touched on the convergence between you know, energy and national security being one of them. But it's, man, I, I tell you what, investors want free cash flow back. Uh, companies are not going to overinvest. Uh, and I think that preordains, as Jeff just touched on with regard to the inevitable tightening, probably with regard to products, it's going to preordain market balances being tighter and, you know, prices going higher at some point. When that happens, I don't know. But uh, yeah. that, that was my takeaway. 
Yeah. yeah. One of the big things, again, like now seeing this for a while, the discipline, we didn't t- use that word as much yeah. this year as we have in the past, but yeah. that discipline over the past two years, especially, Doc, has put a lot of these people that we've been talking to in a position where they can be cautiously optimistic, whereas in other cycles, that might not have been the case here. Yeah, good point. That's a good point. I think that's a great point. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that except to say that I would just say, you know, the mood last year was palpably bullish. I felt like, generally speaking, you're right, Sean, when you say I think people sort of had this had a view that, look, this is happening. It's getting better. Everything, things were improving at the margin. Pretty much, you know, anyone you talk to, things were getting better. You know, I mean, the EMP guys, things were sort of getting better. I mean, granted, granted maybe not on a cost front. Um, but, you know, just it, it sort of felt like there was just generally more optimism here. I felt, you know, a little more muted. I don't think anyone was glum or down in the dumps by any stretch of the imagination. But I think, you know, to your point of things are a little more complicated, I think that's, you could you could definitely kind of feel that. You could feel the, that, you know, the, in the mood of the attendees. Yep. Well, 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 Bill, thanks for putting this together. Uh, Bill Herbert and Jeff Jay, thanks for participating. Yep. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks everybody. I mean, we're going to try to keep doing these things. We we've the in basin observations podcast is getting a little bit more legs this year in 23, but um, we'll try to do more of these round tables too, because I think that it helps all of us, get our minds around all the people that we talk to and, you know, help us determine, you know, what we think is important out there. Um, Yeah. But again, thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see all of our, you know, teens and twenties and thousands, uh, hundreds of listeners out there again soon. (laughs) All right. Cheers, man. Bye. -bye. (laughs) See you guys. guys. (laughs) See ya.